Hello. Welcome to the Three Worlds Podcast Series 2, Episode 2. We're going to talk a lot more about actual shamanism this time and kind of get into nitty gritty a little bit. But I just wanted to say a couple of things that I forgot to say last time when I was talking about shamanism in general. Uh, it won't take a moment, but I think they're kind of important. The one thing is that uh, a lot of times you'll see extravagant um, comments made about archaeological sites that are evidence for shamanism. I want to pour cold water on that. And the reason I want to pour cold water on it is we were not there. We did not witness the ceremonies. We were not in the heads of the people partaking in those ceremonies. Nobody interviewed the people who were doing those ceremonies. All we have are evidence of possible ritualistic performance. We do not know the nature of those rituals. We do not know whether they were shamanic, theatrical, animistic, or just some form of weird party game. No excavated materials can actually tell us anything, really. We can only make conjecture. We can only have vague theories of what was going on because we simply weren't there and we don't know. We especially were not in the heads of the people in the ceremonies. We don't know if they went into trance and met spirits or what happened if the spirits came into them and went through them. Or It's just such a minefield. So I'm very, very against all these websites that say, mm, 3,000-year-old shaman's tomb or whatever, because it's just rubbish. I have to be careful there. I almost said a naughty word. <laughs> um, so that's the one thing. The, the very first record that we actually have of shamans uh, is a written account from China about 2000 years ago. So before that, everything is conjecture. So that's the one thing I wanted to say. And the other thing very quickly is at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. This talk of shamanism, this whole debate about what is shamanism, what is not shamanism, it really doesn't matter. It's a very technical debate. I like to be technical. I'm a bit anal in that way. You know, I'm, I'm a bit kind of OCD or whatever you might want to describe it as. I want to have things all tidy. But at the end of the day, if somebody is doing an animistic practice and they're helping people or they're doing magical work, and if somebody is doing a shamanic practice and they're helping people and doing magical work, what difference does it make, really, at the end of the day? It's useful to be able to talk about these things from an academic point of view. But if you need help and you go to a medicine person or you need help and you go to a shaman and those people help you, because they have a way of contacting the spirits, be it shamanic or be it animistic, that's got to be the important thing. So I love to have technical arguments, technical debates about what shamanism is and what it isn't and all of that. But animism is fantastic. Animism is a wonderful, wonderful thing and deeply powerful and incredibly magical. And it just makes no difference at the end of the day. It is very much a technical argument. So having said that, let's move on to something a little less technical I want to talk about keeping safe. Shamanism is not safe. 
Shamanism is not nice and not tidy, but above all, it's not safe. And uh, animism, animism is not tidy and not safe. I'm going to use the term shamanism in a very broad sense. I'm going to pretend I'm a Victorian and use it to describe any of these traditions because it's easier than saying shamanism and animism. I'm just going to say shamanism. So shamanism is not safe. If you read the old stories, you will come across shamans that die because they can't get back into their body or the spirits take them off or they end up in uh, battles with other shamans and they get killed by magic and it's just not safe. So I want to talk about safety. I want to talk about safety, not in a big extreme way like that, but the little everyday safety that we come across, like what to do with some of the situations that you might find yourself in with spirits that are not comfortable. What to do about some of the situations that you might find yourself in with teachers on workshops that are not comfortable. There's all sorts of little ways that we can't be safe or are not safe. So I think maybe that's a good thing to address. I'd like to just say a little, little teaching story, which I often use when I'm talking about shamanism to people. Um, it's to do with uh, the depth that we go in. I always kind of equate it to being by the sea. I live not far from the sea. I like going and walking on the beach. I drive to the post office to go and post things. And I can actually, on a clear day, see the sea across the hills and across the, the fields and whatever. And I get a little, little glimpse of the sea. Shamanism is a bit like that. Some people only glimpse it from a long way away. Some people live right in the middle of the country and they never even know that shamanism exists. Some people see it from a long way away and it does not affect their life. Some people go and sit in the car park by the beach and never get out of their car and watch the waves. Other people get out of their car and they walk on the beach but they never go near the water. Some people go and paddle in the water and they get their toes wet. Some people go in right up to their knees. A couple of people maybe even go up to their chests. This is real big stuff. One or two people, they swim. A few, ever such a few, they dive. Shamanism, spiritual practice, it's like that. I think it's like that. I think some people really go in a long way and other people just, well, they walk on the shore. And that's fine. Everybody's got their own place and it's all got to be the right place for you. If you can't swim and somebody drops you in the sea off a boat 50 yards off the shore, you're going to have a problem. Sometimes you might be walking on the shore and a great big wave will come along and it might grab you and drag you back in and you're going to drown. And that happens and that happens in shamanism. Sometimes you might be a really strong swimmer, but you still might drown. So shamanism isn't safe, but if you're just poddling about on the shore, if you're just walking around splashing your toes in the waves, you're going to be a lot safer than if you go way out of your depth and try and swim or try and dive. So that's one kind of safety. So people I sometimes see, they are fearful about doing a shamanic journey. They are fearful about doing a ceremony. They are fearful about doing any kind of spiritual practice because they 
are frightened about how much they're going to get out of their depth. Literally, we talk about that, don't we? We talk about the fact that people get out of their depth with things. So I want to say that if you're starting off doing shamanic work, and maybe you're going on a workshop to do core shamanism or something like that, and you're learning to journey, or maybe you're doing some other form of spiritual practice, like you're doing a bit of meditation or whatever, chances are you're really safe. I'm not going to tell you that you're 100% safe because you're not 100% safe walking on the beach. But you know yourself that you're going to be pretty safe walking on that beach. It's only if you get into deep water that you're not going to be so safe. So have no fear if you want to start working in a shamanic way. Have no fear if you want to do spiritual practice. If you want to start doing little ceremonies and things like that, that's safe. Basically, for all intents and purposes, that is 100%, safe. So go for it. Do it because the world needs you to do those things. We are hardwired to be animistic. I am absolutely, absolutely in deep belief about that. I think everybody in our culture and in the world is hardwired because of who we are as human beings to be animistic. We talk to our cars. We talk to the, oh, I don't know, I talk to the weather. I talk to just about anything. I'm probably weird. That's all right. I don't mind being weird. I bet a lot of you don't mind being weird as well. Hey, we'll all be weird together. The world needs weird people. So animism is part of your human condition and I think doing ceremonies and all of that stuff is part of the human condition too. And I think it's really important for your health, I guess, is a good way of putting it. Certainly for your sanity, but for your health, for your vitality, for your connection to the world, it's really good. It's really important to do that. So I want to talk about teachers and teachings and workshops and real world practical stuff like that. I'm one of a small group of moderators in the largest shamanism group on Facebook, which has got getting on for about 70,000 members. And one of the things that is constantly asked in that group is, where do I find a teacher? Now, that's quite a difficult question to answer for a lot of reasons. One, depending on where they live. Two, what is it they want to learn and what sort of teacher are they looking for, etc, etc. But there are some basic ground rules, I think, which are important to talk about. Shamanism, animism, all of these things, they're kind of part of the New Age movement. And I'm going to be perhaps a little outspoken but polite and say that the New Age movement is an industry. And there's an awful lot of people that are self-employed in that industry and they're trying to sell products. They're trying to sell workshops, bums on seats. They're trying to sell fingers turning pages in books. They are trying to sell products. And there's so much misinformation about what is real and traditional and solid. And, you know, there's lots of new agey things mixed in with it and whatever. So if you are new and you don't know very much about shamanism, it's very difficult to know what on earth it is that you're signing up to. Some of these teachings, some of these workshops, they're great. They're brilliant. They're really good. And I also think it's really good that people are seeking. It's just that there's an awful lot of junk food peddlers out there. And people who don't 
actually know the difference between fine dining and junk food are not necessarily going to be able to differentiate between those. So it gets very difficult. So I want to say if you are in a workshop or you're finding somebody that is kind of you feel maybe they're a bit manipulative or they're telling you stuff that you have difficulty swallowing because it's just a little bit of an incredulous chunk. I think you need to pay attention to that. Trust yourself, trust your gut feelings, trust your intuition and vote with your feet if you feel uncomfortable. It's also really important, I think, that you educate yourself. I would encourage you to read books and look at videos and all of that kind of stuff about shamanism and animism. And I would advise maybe not to read New Age material because you don't know if you're reading real stuff or total nonsense stuff. If you were to study or look at some real, honest-to-goodness anthropological stuff about shamanism it's going to give you a, a kind of like a picture of what the real stuff is and then you can kind of have a little bit of discretion perhaps when you meet some stuff which is perhaps a little bit more fluffy you're going to be a bit more informed we all need to be informed and it's a never-ending process I learn new things every day and I've been to some well, goddamn awful new age events in the past. And I didn't know that so much when I was a lot younger and was just sort of starting out on this stuff. And and I'd swallowed hook, line and sinker some fairly new age teachings because I didn't know any better. So one thing is don't beat yourself up. Do not fear making a prat of yourself by walking out of somewhere if you feel uncomfortable. Do not fear making a prat of yourself by asking questions of the teacher. You are responsible for you and not everybody out there is going to be doing things for your best interest. OK, good example. Nowadays, there's a very good example around from Buddhism. It's the, the rather sad and difficult case of uh, Sogyal Laka, who uh, is often known as Sogyal Rinpoche. Now, Sogyal Rinpoche became quite a large name in Tibetan Buddhism and he wrote or co-wrote a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. I think it's called something like that. Good book. Um, I've read it. I've recommended it to various people. Um, however, Sogyal was a most dubious teacher with a lot of physical bullying and sexual abuse going on in the background. He's recently died and all of this has kind of come out of, of the closet, as it were. And he's been kind of, um, well, they call it defrocking in the Christian church. I'm not quite sure what the Tibetan word is, but he's basically been defrocked as a Rinpoche. And he left a trail of damage behind him. Now, he was supposedly a very reputable teacher, so you've got to be careful because there are horror stories and not everybody is nice and not everybody has your best interest at heart. And you've really only got two defences. The one defence is knowledge. The more knowledgeable you are, the more you will actually see people's bullshit and the other defence you've got is the courage to walk out and not get taken up and not get kind of caught on your own neediness. We're all of us very often needy. 
We need teachings. Teachings affirm us. We desperately seek a path. We desperately seek a teacher. We're desperately hungry. So somebody comes along and they offers us some junk food and they tell us it's good food and we're so hungry, we swallow it all. And we don't know the difference between, like I said, junk food or fine dining. We don't know between junk food and whole food. And so we shove anything into our mouths. I've done it and I bet you've done it, if you're honest. So the more you learn, the more you find out about things, the more you're guarded against that because you're more aware. Awareness is the great thing. If we are aware, aware of what's real and what isn't in forms of teachings and aware of our own neediness and our own desire for gratification and being pleased and finding a nice path that affirms us, if we can be aware of all of those things and have the confidence and the courage and the strength of mind to not follow the herd and actually call out the bullshit and walk away, then we're less likely to get trapped. We're less likely to get caught. I've worked with teachers that have been out-and-out sorcerers and used magic in a very manipulative and difficult way. I got really ill by working with one of those. I got really ill for a while. I, uh, I uh, Well, I'll tell you the story. I got connected um, by uh, magical means to uh, this person's altar and uh, it was really difficult and I didn't want to and I fought against it at the time thinking yeah I'm big tough magician dude I can deal with this and that night I ended up kind of like having nightmares that I was stuck inside the fabric of the stones of the building that we were in all night. They were kind of like lucid dreams, really unpleasant dreams. And um, then the next day I started to feel physically ill. And by the end of that day, I was really not at all well. And I was throwing up and I had diarrhea and I was just not in a good space. I spent the next week in bed I lost about a stone and a half of weight. I don't know what that is in kilos. Um, and uh, I could not touch a sacred object or do any sacred practice for about a month afterwards because every time I did, I felt physically sick. This was uh, magic. This was sorcery. The person that I was working with, that teacher, was, well, to be fair, they warned everybody in the circle that they were a sorcerer and they would do anything that they could in order to shift people. And they shifted people. I got very shifted on all sorts of levels. All sorts of things moved. Um, so that was one example. Um, I learned a great deal. I learned a huge amount from that teacher. I learned a lot of things about power. I learned a lot of things about protection. I learned uh, a lot about my own weaknesses, my own vulnerabilities. Uh, I went back and worked with them again um, about a year and a half or two years later. And I went in with all of the things that I had learned and I took my power back. I'm not going to go into big details about that. I didn't confront them or anything else. But I went in there and I knew what I knew and I was solid and I was grounded and I left and I completed it. I needed to complete it. If I hadn't have gone back to that teacher, I would have never have completed it. So I deliberately went back and I deliberately worked with them and I deliberately withstood it. 
and tested myself in that way and came out and kind of passed that end of year exam, as it were. So even if you have a bad experience with a teacher, you're going to get something from it, but you might get chewed up in the process. And sometimes it's really okay. Sometimes it's really good to get chewed up, but other times it's not. And especially if you're a newbie or you're a bit vulnerable or whatever, it can be devastating. Some of the students around that particular teacher killed themselves. It was not a good scene. So you do have to be careful. Most people, they're not going to do that to you. They're going to be nice people. They may have some absolute off with the fairies nonsense teachings or they may have really solid teachings that are great and really good for you to go with and devote your life to practicing. If you don't know about those things, if you haven't developed your bullshit detector, you're not going to know. So you've got to turn on your bullshit detector and you've got to develop it and you've got to keep updating the software in it and then you'll be a bit safer. But never be frightened of actually voting with your feet because voting with your feet is sometimes the best things that you can do. This brings up for me the, um, the cost of a lot of training and workshops and teachings and also the cost of healing. And maybe it's a good idea to just talk a little bit about some of those sorts of things. Many workshops are really expensive. I've got to totally say that. Some of them are ludicrously expensive. Now, there's a certain need for cost. Um, if somebody is hiring a centre or, you know, a venue of some sort, then, yeah, it costs and people need to pay that because it's the real world. However, some costs are astronomically high and some teachers charge a vast amount, way more than they actually need to. And that's part of the sort of industry that's around this. So I think that's another consideration for you if you're concerned about a teacher. Look at what they're actually charging. If you're going to have to pay several hundred dollars, several hundred pounds to do a non-residential weekend workshop because this teacher has got a name in inverted commas I think that really for me raises an awful lot of questions I was taught my first teachers were kind of Native American and and Anglo people that taught Native American traditions as well and it was always drummed into me especially by the traditional teachers that one didn't charge for ceremony one didn't charge for healing and subsequently, as I've worked, I've uh, taken the attitude which I learned from some of my Tibetan teachers that the teachings are priceless and therefore, you know, the teacher has to eat, but teachings are available to anybody at any time. And there's a certain amount of trust in that the teacher gets enough because people give a donation properly so that they can continue the work. Now, the old maxim, the teachings are priceless, but the teacher has to eat, is really important. And we don't have a culture very much in the West 
that uh, kind of knows the value of these things. So people tend to want to get things for nothing very often, which means that they don't necessarily give a proper donation that values the time of the teacher and also the importance of the teachings. I don't know how to get around that other than it's a slow process of educating people. There's nothing wrong particularly, I suppose, with charging for teachings, or at least, I don't know, I'm never very comfortable with it. Occasionally I have to. I'm teaching a workshop in Iceland next year, and the sheer logistics of that means that I have to charge. But when I'm teaching a weekend in my own house, or if somebody wants to come to me to learn one-to-one, then I really only work on a donation basis, because I believe very passionately that that old maxim of the teachings are priceless brackets but the teacher has to eat is actually really important and also I think there's a certain amount of trust that is required if you're walking a sacred path there is something about trusting the spirits and trusting the process and trusting that what you're kind of doing is in the right direction with the sacred, and if it is in the right direction with the sacred, and you're doing it from that place, then there is something about reciprocity in that the sacred will kind of look after you, because you're in alignment with it. Now, maybe it's because I'm an old hippie, Maybe it's because uh, I went to very much Christian schools when I was a kid. And back then in the Dark Ages, Christianity was much more prevalent in Britain than it is nowadays. But you also find this sort of attitude in native teachings, too. One of my heroes is the Lakota holy man, Frank Foolscrow. And one of my favorite sayings from Foolscrow is that, Anyone can do the things that I do if they're prepared to live the life that I lead. And he lived a very impoverished life, having to trust spirit, having to trust the mystery. That's a difficult thing to do. And we live in a pragmatic age. People have mortgages and rents to pay and bills and all of that. And yeah, it's really difficult. So I'm, I'm not lecturing that one. I think we all have to find our own way of balance with that and do what we feel comfortable with. The same with healings. Like I said a little while ago, I was always taught that healings and ceremonies should never, ever be charged for. And if they cost, then in a way, that's part of your giveaway. You know, I, when I used to sort of run sweat lodges and things like that, I'd often end up out of pocket because that is part of the price of actually doing that life and doing those ceremonies for people. You are there at the service of those people. And if it costs you, that's what it costs. I think it's really important, however, that people actually do give a big gift if they're going to get healed. If they're coming to you as a healer, if people come to me as a healer and they want it for nothing, well, that's fine. I'll give it them for nothing. But in effect, they're kind of not going to get anything. It's going to hurt if you want to get better. If you want to make changes in your life, you've got to show the spirit that you want to make those changes. And one of the best ways of doing that is it costs. Now, I would never charge for a ceremony ever. And if somebody came to me and wanted a ceremony, then I would do what was needed and there would be no charge, even if it meant that I was completely out of pocket. But I would encourage them to give a large gift 
which is the old way of doing it, which is the traditional way of doing it. And that gift is because they value the process that they've been through and they value the spirits and they value my skill as being able to be an intermediary between them and the spirits. So it's really important. The whole concept of giveaway is really, really important. You give away so much that it hurts because the more you give away, the more you get back. I think it's really important to define what a big gift is. If somebody's got no money at all, then £10, $10, that's a big gift. If somebody is rich or even just well off, then you give what is a big gift for that person. So big gift is very proportional depending on how much money and what resources you have. Not everybody that's listening to this is going to agree with these things, and that's absolutely fine. Like I said, you've got to find your own way of doing it, and I think one's own way changes as we learn more and develop and everything else. And my ways maybe will change. Maybe I'll start charging lots and lots of money. When thousands of people start listening to this podcast and I get to be a big name, then maybe I'm going to charge $600 for a one-day workshop and uh, rake it all in. Who knows? Well, it's not going to happen. I'm never going to get that many subscribers to this podcast. <laughs> oh, um, for me, it really is a matter of the heart, I think, working, doing shamanic work. It's a matter between me and the spirits. It's a way of just being of service, I guess. And I know that sounds a bit corny and probably a bit cheesy, but that's kind of my take on it. I trained as a psychotherapist. I used to charge X amount per hour. That's that model. That's that world. I think part of the problem in the West is that that model, that world, that way of thinking has kind of crept into shamanism. And people now tend to think of shamanism as a bit like a kind of slightly alternative psychotherapy. And they hire a, a room and an office and maybe, you know, charge by the hour and things like that. I'm not a big fan. I'm so not a big fan. I like my shamanism to be kind of earthy and natural and I'm old school and I'm unrepentantly old school and some of you won't like that and sorry, but that's just me and you have to square it yourself. You have to do it the way that you feel is right for you. I'm not telling you how it should be done. I'm trying to raise some questions and I'm saying my approach to it. So this episode, we've been talking about the real world aspects of finding a teacher and all of that jazz. And next one, we'll talk about working with the spirits and the sticky spots that you can get into and keeping safe in the spirit world a little bit. So thank you for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. And I hope it's given you some food for thought. A few links for you. If you would like to contact me, email is nick at sacredhoop.org. Sacred Hoop is a magazine about shamanism. It's a quarterly magazine that's been published since 1993. If you'd like to subscribe to Sacred Hoop, you can do so. And there's a kind of secret link which gives a special offer, which is sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html. I also run a gallery website which features and sells and deals with antique and new Tibetan Buddhist and shamanic ritual objects from Mongolia and other places. 
That is threeworlds.co.uk. It's the number three, not the word three. And if you'd like to make a donation to help support this podcast, you can do it through PayPal. And the email address to send the payment to is donation at sacredhoop.org. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.